I think if you look at the historical trend for healthcare costs, and I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the work that, that William Beaumont wrote about years ago, uh, this whole idea of the so-called um, cost disease, which is if you look at the relationship between healthcare costs and GDP in every country since we've been tracking in the 1960s, costs grow in every country one to two percent faster than GDP. And it doesn't matter how they're organized or how much they pay. High spend, low spend, doesn't matter. Public, private, doesn't matter. Growth of healthcare costs the NHS is the same as it is in the U.S., even though they only pay half of what we spend and spend. Okay, why is that? Well, because the cost of human labor, which is the way we all do healthcare, grows at the same rate of the economy of those people that they're in. And then scientific innovation and an aging population give you the 1% to 2% plus. Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer-co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's show, our guest making an encore appearance is Kaveh Safave, MD, JD, Senior Managing Director at Accenture, where he is responsible for leading, developing, and driving a growth strategy that differentiates Accenture's offerings for providers, health insurers, and public and private health systems across the globe. A seasoned executive, Dr. Safave brings more than three decades of leadership experience to Accenture Health. Prior to joining Accenture in 2011, Dr. Safave led Cisco's global healthcare practice. Before that, he was chief medical officer at Thomson Reuters Health Business, vice president of medical affairs at United Healthcare and held leadership roles at HealthSpring and Humana. So Fred, with that very brief introduction, over to you. Help us catch up with Dr. Safavi and his work at Accenture Health. Thanks so much, Greg. And Kave, welcome to Pop Health Week. Hey, good to be with you again. It's fantastic. It's been too long, Kave. I think the last time we spoke was probably at HIMSS, I believe, a couple of years ago. And it's always fascinating because you come up with these incredible reports coming out about what's happening in digital health technology. And you've got this latest one out, the Accenture Digital Health Technology Vision 2021. What's it look like? Well, we do a tech vision every year as a company across all industries. And then we think about it in the context of healthcare. And so what you're seeing this year represents a continuous evolution of our thinking There are five broad themes, five broad themes across all industries, and we could talk a little bit about what they mean in the context of healthcare, but I think they are particularly interesting, and I think they really do represent the dramatic impact that digital health and digital technologies are having on how healthcare is is going to be experienced by everybody. So I'm happy to take it at whatever level of detail you'd like. Yeah, so let's start in with a little bit. I noticed that obviously COVID hit us last year. So maybe as an overarching principle, how did you see that impact this? Well, uh, COVID, I think, served as a catalyst um, as opposed to introducing a new problem to the equation. All society, including healthcare, was on a digital journey. We've laid out that step in in our previous conversations. I think that uh, the nature of COVID did a couple of things to businesses. In the first immediate short run, it was a shock to the system that forced businesses to answer the question, am I resilient enough to withstand a dramatic change to my business? And in many cases, the answer was no, 
or not quite. And what that caused was a recognition that these businesses have to have a much more fundamental digital chassis in order to have the resilience to respond to, to what happened when COVID caused society to shut down. And I think in particular in healthcare, um, it demonstrated because of the constant opening, closing, opening, closing phenomenon, the, the nature of resilience and elasticity, which is interesting because we've been talking about the criticality of cloud computing as an example. And, and one of the reasons for the criticality of cloud computing is it gives businesses elasticity. And it was always in the context of opportunity and competitiveness, never in the context of survival. COVID said, forget that. Now it's in the context of survival. So that was thing one. The other thing that COVID did was it introduced a new case for distance in healthcare. It used to be that we thought about distance primarily in uh, using the language of preferred experience and access, but we actually thought about it in the context of contagion. There are situations where it is simply not right for people to be in the room with each other. And so our ability to provide services and separate caregivers from patients or dangerous situations is now gonna be built into our healthcare system. That kind of platform by its nature has to be a digital platform. So COVID introduced two new forces that accelerate what had always been the path of healthcare technology. Yeah, and, and it, I guess we probably should also point out, this, is, this report is built on the expertise within Accenture and then a survey you do of, of uh, people throughout the healthcare system? Yeah, well, we actually do. A, so this is a global survey of all industries. So there's 6,000 leaders across all industries and all geographies. For health specifically, there are actually 400 leaders that are surveyed as uh, covering 12 geographies. But the opinions represent a synthesized view that includes outside and inside points of view and expertise. And you talked about, as you mentioned earlier, five areas, which were this stack strategically, mirrored world, iTechnologist, anywhere, everywhere, and from me to we. Yes. So starting with stack strategically, what were the areas that were specifically gotten into with that? Well, the essence of st stack strategically is the recognition uh, and uh, something like 98% of the respondents said that you can't separate the business strategy from the technology strategy, is that they are so, there is such a deeply intertwined relationship between them that now your technology is your business strategy. And actually what was even more interesting uh, was the statistic that 73% of executives thought that their technology architecture is critical to the overall success of their organization. Meaning that if you don't get it right, you can be harmed, which is a little different than using it as a competitive advantage. And so what we're saying now is people are starting to think about their technology investment as a strategic asset, and they're making choices about what technology they want to use, not just as a matter of hygiene, but actually as a, a matter of the ability to execute their strategy. And you, in a very simplistic way, we saw these kind of things play themselves out during COVID when people had to immediately move their workforce home or immediately provide virtual visits. If they had not made the right choices from a technology perspective, they couldn't do that the way they needed to do it. And so, uh, and it's not a one technology problem, it's a, it's a set of technologies. So we think about this idea of making technology choices that stack on top of each other and give you the capabilities to change your business in a dramatically different way. So it's a strategic asset. Yeah, and I believe the last time we spoke, as I remember interviewing you, I believe you pointed out the fact that we, we spent a fortune on technology and healthcare over the last decade since the Affordable Care Act, obviously, implementing EMRs. And you talked about this loss of efficiency, as I recall, maybe it was 15% yeah. associated with the implementation of that technology. Is, are we going to get it better this time? Do you see the thinking changing, perhaps, as they build that stack out? 
for sure, uh, because the primary driver of that loss of productivity that I described is the act of putting data into healthcare systems and the typing. That's the primary driver of the inefficiency. And uh, clearly the technology is available to listen to a conversation, understand a concept, and then convert that concept into structured terminology that a machine can use for future things, decision support, workflow, et cetera, is right now in, not just in R&D, but is actually being moved into examples uh, where health systems are testing, validating, refining workflow. So, and all of the health, uh, not only do all the electronic health record companies have investments in these areas, but the communication and collaboration companies also have these kinds of these technologies in, in flight. And the net effect of that is going to be particularly beneficial. However, that's a single type of technology that sits on a group of technologies. And so mm -hmm. what you quickly see is the interdependency between that and other things like your basic communication and workflow, for example. And, and that's, I think, where we're really seeing this idea of ecosystems as opposed to these individual mm -hmm. little point solutions showing up. Right. So this is the overlaying, I guess, of a natural language processing system on top of a broader set of, yeah. of, of the, systems the particular within. particular capability I'm referring to is a, is a combination of things that have been around like speech and language recognition that are amplified through artificial intelligence to improve the fidelity and the ability to understand and get the right understanding of the word so that you can actually create the right terminology that's structured. And historically, the only way to do that was the human brain, the doctor decided how they were going to actually code a concept. And now we're allowing the machine to learn what the doctor's thinking, get used to the way they talk and understand that when I use these words in this fashion, this is the term that I need to drop in. And that term can then be used for other purposes. Got it. So the, the other area you talked about was this mirror of yeah. mirrored world. And what do you mean by that? Or what does Accenture mean by mirrored world? So mirrored world is a recognition of the fact that increasingly there is so much data about what we do that people are creating simulated environments. And in a simulated environment, they can test and learn. And for example, uh, this is already happening in scientific discovery where people are simulating in, in silica a phenomenon for uh, drug discovery, as an example, and even devices. But increasingly, people are moving toward uh, using a, uh, a mirrored world, if you will, or a replicated environment to do things like test experiences or test workflow. So, for example, there are several pediatric hospitals now that are basically creating the opportunity for children who are going to have a procedure, endoscopy, a surgery, to, through the use of things like virtual reality and other things, understand what it will feel like to be admitted to the hospital, to go to the operating room, the recovery room, all of that is designed to give them a simulated experience to prepare them. There's also people looking at this from an operating perspective. I want to change a workflow. I want to change something about how this team is working. I can go in and simulate the environment, make the change, and then adapt the other pieces that go around it. What's critical, though, is this is not a software problem. It's a data problem. A mirrored world isn't about software. It's about the data. The data is what are the pixels that create the picture. And because everything is putting data off, we're now able to bring them together and create this kind of a picture. And, you know, in manufacturing plants and in unsafe industries, people have already been doing this. Uh, but it requires us to think about more than just clinical data in a record. If you just let's just go to a hospital environment we, we, to do a mirror to do this, what you're really doing is taking the stuff that's coming off of all the devices that are emitting information today that's basically being dumped so that you can 
you can actually use it to replicate and create an environmental context and then you can learn or test something in there as an example. So that brings up an interesting question that we've seen now coming up, um, both from the data acquisition side as well as from the algorithm side, which is, you know, bias in the data or bias in the algorithm. Yes. And, and you've talked some about AI. How is that being dealt with? And do you yes. see that ultimately getting solved in an effective manner? Well, the bias is generally, uh, there are two reasons for bias. One is an incomplete sample. And so the more complete the sample is, the better that is. Uh, the second kind of bias is more of a reflection of the lived experiences that we have today are simply biased. And therefore, the computer will perfectly perpetuate that. That's a little different, right? And that requires more of an active manipulation of the information to solve for that problem. The, the, the published data on the fact that patient care had been representing, let's say, racial disparities. So doctors were making different recommendations based on the race of the patient. That wasn't the standard of care. All the data in the world will just perpetuate that. You have to choose to go in and manipulate that and make it different. So I think that we're, you know, the, com the completeness, maybe we can solve for that and we will. The, the intrinsic bias and the way information is created, that's a different kind of problem that has to be solved. Uh, I think one of the things that's happening though in health is recognizing that historically the universe of data that we were focused on was clinical and increasingly we're recognizing that that's not the case. For example, people who are working on understanding patient well-being at home by some versions of sensing or ambient sensing, they don't really need clinical data. What they really need is environmental data like about the patient and their where they you know where in the room they've been, what position, all those kinds of things are useful. The record isn't the point. And when we know we know um, how this is true for all of us. So my point being that the universe of data that we care about is much bigger than just diagnosis, treatment, CPT, ICD-9, SNOMED. It's a lot more than that. And so, you know, as you, as you brought that up, I was thinking to myself, okay, we have all this clinical data set. We're now bringing in the social determinants of health data set. And you're now talking about an, essentially a third data set yeah. of, of, uh, of real experience. What's yeah, going on? Yeah, environmental context. Yeah. Exactly. And, then, and there's actually another data set, Fred, and that's mm -hmm. preference. Because right. Sitting in the back of all of our minds is what our wishes are, which isn't any of those data sets, but is captured. So the retailers have been very much focused on trying to infer preference through behavior, right? And then making that part of it. Well, that's just as true for healthcare. And so now there are people trying to figure out how one can infer preference, whether it's patient preference or clinician preference through a set of other activities. So we can't forget that. Absolutely. I've always wanted to have that parrot on my shoulder that talked to me exactly the way I, to get me to do something. You yeah, know, right. once they understand me well enough, my parrot's going to be different than your parrot, I assume. <laughs> so you also talked about I, the technology technologists in this yeah. area of now sort of getting this data out to other individuals to be able to manipulate and use it in a sense? So this concept is really, uh, we call this the democratization of technology, and it's fundamentally based on things like no-code, low-code technology that's coming out or the ubiquitous presence of natural language processing. So you don't have to be a technologist to really manipulate technology to help you. And, you know, we started to the evolution of democratization started a few years ago with analytics, where we started to do things like, well, let's make decision support available to the business leaders. So instead of asking your decision support people to run a report, I could go in and configure a report. And, and you know, we see tools that are out there that, that, you know, CRM and sales management world has been built like that, where the leaders play around with the data. But increasingly, uh, some of these other uh, technologies are no-code technologies or low-code are allowing business leaders to effectively change the technology that they use for their workflow 
through talking to the machine, but they do have to understand technology. So what we're saying is that we're not trying to make everybody a software programmer, but it's because software is your coworker in many cases, your ability to interact with software is becoming so easy and you actually have to have that capability. So I'll give you an example. Um, We call this thing technology quotient. And of course, our company spends its time helping people figure out how to use technology to solve problems. And we have, we actually insist that all 500,000 of our employees certify at the, at, and actually take an exam in seven different technology domains, meaning more than just a superficial knowledge. And we, the reason for that is we believe technology literacy is too critical to just be the domain of a few people. Now, that, that plays itself out in different ways. But my point simply being that, uh, in, like in the manufacturing world, as an example, there's already a term called a cobot, co-worker robot. Mm-hmm. And what we also know is for a human to interact with a technology robot coworker, there are a whole set of skills of interacting with that machine that are different than the normal skills of you of two humans interacting that they have to learn. All of this is about this whole idea that the ubiquitous nature of technology and recognizing it as our coworker has a set of literacy and a set of capabilities that go with it. And that's how we're going to have to think about the world. So you as an organization have done this. I can't imagine the hours and cost of implementing that type of a training program out to that your group. Mm-hmm. How is a hospital going to look at that and say, or a healthcare system and say, well, we're going to work that into our everything else, obviously, to create this idea mm-hmm. that many people talk about of data liquidity, getting it out to the right. people in a way they can use it. And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, our guest is Kave Safave, MD, JD, Senior Managing Director at Accenture, a multinational company that provides consulting and processing services. For more information, go to www.accenture.com and do follow their work on Twitter via at D-R-K-A-V-E-H-S-A-F-A-V-I and Accenture Health, respectively. Well, it's going to happen when they can't see how they can survive without it. I mean, there's no business case until you, unless you understand the fact that it's fundamentally, you can't afford to be without it. And then all of a sudden you change the metrics on what, on, you know, on the why statement. Um, I think you're starting to see this in parts of businesses increasingly. I mean, we are seeing this in uh, a number of organizations now where they're saying that our digital capabilities need to be present in all departments. So instead of having a digital center of excellence where everyone goes there, everyone has to have a version of this in their operating unit because it just comes too fast. You know, you, you, you can't just send a request in or go hire a developer. You've got to be able to figure out how to take no code. We, this actually happened during COVID. There were some, there are some no code scheduling technologies out there for workforce that, that we, what we began to see were line staff that were essentially building the scheduling capabilities for them to deploy their own people because the capability existed. If they had to wait for software to be developed, the pandemic, the vaccine would have been developed by the time that happened, right? But the technology made it so that line workers could go there and say, I need a logistical capability that helps me figure out where people go with this volatile demand. And I can actually, and I know it's too hard for, it's too much for humans to compute, but machines can do it. And because this technology is accessible, I know the business concepts, I can actually create the technology that I can then start to use right away. And I don't have to go hire a third party to do this stuff for me. And that's the kind of thing we're beginning to see. So it's becoming much easier for these groups to implement these types of services and systems. That's exactly the point. 
in 2020, I noticed that AI was one of the top five in your, your categories yeah. and it's dropped. Has it dropped because it's sort of become mainstream and is just now considered in there or is it dropped because it's been a little too overhyped? No, no, it's the former. And it's not, it's not hyped, it's ubiquitous mm -hmm. uh, because the, the issue is that uh, as a transformative technology, that's why you don't see language like cloud anymore or AI. These are fundamental capabilities. The question is, how are you going to feel it, right? So things like mirrored world is only possible because the software can learn and change itself without explicit programming, as an example. Uh, the democratization, the presence of no-code or low-code technology is in fact because the technology is smart enough that it allows a non-coder to manipulate the machine and get, to manipulate the technology in a way that it can get a result that's useful. So. It's much more about the pervasive and ubiquitous nature of it than it is about the fact that it's a discrete thing that is either there or not there. Mm -hmm. How much of this, you know, we're seeing incredible impacts on operational efficiencies, things like that. You know, how much of this is going to be operational versus clinical? Yeah. Well, I think that the truth of the matter is that it's easier to see the gains in the non-clinical areas first for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first is you don't have to do clinical validation to do that. Uh, so big issue, right? Um, also, in many cases, you don't have to change uh, everybody in the healthcare system's lives to do it. Many of, these many of these operating tests are owned by smaller groups, right? So it's one thing to try to change the way every doctor practices medicine. It's another thing to go out and change a function whether it's a call center or a revenue or a supply chain or whatever it might be. So the bottom line of it is, is that I think we're going to see the non-clinical have a greater manifestation. Clinical will certainly gain its benefits in different ways from this. There's no question. Like the mirrored world is probably going to deliver a lot of results in clinical R&D and training, mm -hmm. maybe even more than operational, just because, because in that case, you don't want to experiment on human beings. So the ability to experiment and simulate without actually having to do something to a living thing has tremendous value. Um, you just have to be able to replicate the environment, and that requires us to have data from the biological perspective. But I think I think that's how we see this thing play itself out: is uh, both, and depending on the technology, more favors one or the other. It just depends on which problem we want to solve. Mm -hmm. So the big question that's come up for years, and the big argument is, and, and I'm asking you, obviously a physician, an expert yeah. in this area, is replacement versus additive for physicians. Are there areas where this technology may in fact replace? Uh, well, so even the biggest issue for the, the jobs people do is, is fundamentally about the nature of the judgments that they make. And let's call it the non-routine tasks. So if you look at routine tasks, whether they're physical or cognitive, technology has already replaced, not just in health, but outside of health, a large percentage of non-routine tasks are routine tasks. Most of the jobs that have been created in the last decade are what we would call non-routine, whether they're physical or cognitive. AI, for example, starts to hive away at simple non-routine tasks, but it leaves all of the other non-routine tasks behind. So it's really a capacity creation story, not an elimination story. Now, people have looked at healthcare specifically, both clinical and non-clinical, and asked the question about how much of the tasks that are performed are routine enough that they're within the reach of basic automation and artificial intelligence as we have it today. I think that the estimates that I've seen land in about 
30% for clinical kinds of jobs and more like 40% for non-clinical. So we don't see 100% in a right. lot of things. Um, and I, I would argue that if 100% was the issue, they've already been eliminated by <laughs> and replaced by technology. And so the truth is that this is much more about expanding capacity. And this is the thing to remember in healthcare is we have a shortage of labor globally mm -hmm. that's getting bigger. The demand is growing faster than supply. There is no amount of supply creation that we can ever do to close that gap. So frankly, if we don't figure out how to extend our resources with technology, we're never going to solve this problem. Similarly, from an affordability perspective, we know that if adding a skilled clinician was the only way to solve a problem, it creates an affordability issue. We've got to figure out lower ways of serving populations, particularly ones with limited resources. We have to figure out how to combine human and machine. So this is, in my mind, completely about tasks and not at all about jobs. So it's about efficiencies and things. And, and, you, and you raise the point of costs and dollars and, and efficiency. Does this finally get us to where we actually can see some sort of, I'm going to say bend and trend because getting people to take it negative seems to be impossible. Is, is that going to be feasible with this technology or is it just something we're going to pay lip service to? I think if you look at the historical relationship uh, uh, trend for healthcare costs, and I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the work that uh, William Bomo wrote about years ago and uh, this whole idea of the so-called um, cost disease, which is if you look at the relationship between healthcare costs and GDP in every country since we've been tracking in the 1960s, costs grow in every country one to two percent faster than GDP, and it doesn't matter how they're organized or how much they pay. High spend, low spend, doesn't matter. Public, private, doesn't matter. Growth of healthcare costs in NHS is the same as it is in the U.S., even though they only pay half of what we spend and spend. Okay, why is that? Well. Because the cost of human labor, which is the way we all do healthcare, grows at the same rate of the economy of those people that they're in. And then scientific innovation and an aging population give you the 1% to 2% plus. Okay, we're not going to stop scientific innovation. We're not going to stop aging population. We're the only industry that has not figured out how to substitute technology for human labor and gain productivity. And this has been documented repeatedly. Healthcare has lost productivity in terms of services created relative to jobs created. And that is the fundamental problem that we have no hope of solving if we don't think about substituting technology for human labor. So can we make the curve one-to-one -one? because we can take away a little of the cost of human capital so we give ourselves some headroom? Yeah, maybe. I mean, but the truth of the matter is that the basic progression of science and the basic progression of demographics is also a driver of trend. So I think we're obligated to try to solve the problems we can solve because as a society, we're going to try to cure disease and we're going to try to treat illness and that's going to come at a cost. Absolutely. And we want that progress, obviously, in technology Absolutely. and science, et cetera. Absolutely. So we can have better lives for everybody moving yeah. forward. And, and, and I'll just amplify that, Ed, with a uh, uh, Fred, excuse me, with another comment, which is that the reality is that I'm not sure people are worried about how much money we spend on healthcare as much as are they getting their money's worth. We, we focus on this as if people wake up every day saying, you know what, I want to make sure we spend less. I think the bigger issue is, and you see this in every society and every poll, nobody's really trying to shut their healthcare system down. They're just angry that they're not getting value for their healthcare system, right? right. That's a very different conversation than just spend less, create austerity. We don't see that. Right. And I think I think this is part of the bent, the issue here is let's people want their money's worth. And that's the real demand. And that's where some of these things kind of they play themselves out is to help people get their money's worth.
Mm-hmm. And I know Accenture will be at Hims coming up. Yes. Anything to plan for at your booth? Things going on? People to see? We do have a, so we do have our new consumer survey research coming out, which um, has some interesting findings. I'll, I've seen it. Um, we also have some interesting research that we're doing around physicians and physician attitudes that I'm looking forward to sharing. Well, fantastic. I'm looking forward to stop by and, and seeing you and the others again we as will. COVID sort of goes post. Not quite yet, yeah. but uh, fantastic to have you again, Cave. It's always a pleasure. See you in August. Fred. We sure will. Back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank Kabe Safave, MDJD, Senior Managing Director at Accenture, for his time and insights today. For more information on Accenture, go to www.accenture.com or follow them on Twitter via at Dr. Kabe Safave and at Accenture Health, respectively. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice and do follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. Bye now.